All right, so in this pursuit of looking at what is church, we are today going to look at how the spirit of religion actually affects how we view scripture, okay? So can we do that? What I want to use a specific topic to bring about this example, but I want us to look at how when we are under the influence of demonic principalities like the spirit of religion, we actually see things in the word that aren't really there, and we don't see things that are there. I have a friend who grew up in a Seventh-day Adventist church, and she was telling me when I got saved, the same Bible that I had bought at Mardell that I had read every week in this tradition, there were words in the word that I physically couldn't see when I was a part of that church. I thought, what? And we began to talk about how when you're so ingrained in a vein, in a way of thinking, you make the Bible say to you what you want it to say. And that's dangerous. So the Bible is the infallible word of God, but it is a divine word given to human hands. And the Bible itself is not God. We know this, right? It is the tool, a tool God has given to reveal who God is, but in itself it is holy, it is sacred, but it is not God. And one of the hardest parts of understanding this is that the Bible was written in a language that isn't spoken anymore. Even Hebrew is not the same Hebrew of what was written in the Bible The Greek today is not really the same Greek. It's gone through several rounds of evolution. And English is a very poor substitute for uh, these ancient languages. I was watching uh, Universal Japan, Universal Studios Japan just opened Nintendo World. Don't go Google that. Save it for you later, all of you guys who are video game people. But we were watching uh, Mario's dad, the inventor of Nintendo, talking about it. It was really fun. And he was speaking in Japanese. And fun fact, I actually spoke Japanese as a younger person My high school, uh, we had to do a foreign language class, and I don't know why. I thought, this will be helpful for me someday. Uh, I wish my parents would have said, look, learn Spanish. That will be helpful for you. But no, I I learned Japanese, and the only thing I can say these days is like how to order a Happy Meal and McDonald's, how to do my home landline phone number. Okay, so in one of our big exchanges, you know, you ask somebody their phone number, so you say, Dinwa banga wa namba desu ka? That means, what's your phone number? And then I would respond in this exercise, Hachi hachi nana no kyuju dokusan which is 881-8656. That was my home phone number. And so thank you. Yes, thank you. Uh, but here's the crazy thing about Japanese. It's a backwards language, meaning when you speak Japanese, you start in English, you put the last word first. So the structure of the sentence is bonkers to an English mind. So to learn Japanese, to read Japanese, and and to translate Japanese, for example, means you have to understand context, rhythm, tenses, cultural application. Otherwise, you cannot articulate Japanese into English in that way. Okay? It's the same in the biblical languages. So what we have is Bible translators doing their very best to articulate something from a language that's not even spoken anymore into English, which is a fairly limiting language. You guys probably have heard this before. In the Greek, they have multiple words for love. You guys know this, familiar with this? Oh, there's phileo, brotherly love. There's eros, romantic love. There's agape, unconditional love. And in English, we just say love. And I can say to my husband, I love you. And I can say to my my brother, my literal brother, I love you. And I can say to all of you, I love you. And I mean different things with that, right? And you guys have to figure that out. 
So if you're reading it and you just say, I love you, you have to look at the context to understand that, what that actually means. That's what we need to do with the Bible. One of my favorite Bible scholars, Michael Heiser, Dr. Michael Heiser, he says it like this. When you approach Bible study, you have to let the word be what it is. We cannot come to the Bible trying to prove a point, trying to comfort ourselves, trying to get reinforcement for something that we believe. We have to come to the Bible and let it be what it is. Amen? And that's a hard thing to do. Because a lot of us read the Bible and we want that jolt feeling. We want to be inspired. We want to feel good about our day. We want to have, like I talked about the other day, uh, that force field around us that now we feel invincible because we read our psalm and proverb for the day. And that's not really what the Bible is for. You can do that. I, I implore you to do that. I love having the word be fuel for me. But when we study the word, we need to go beyond looking for an emotional high. Okay? That's what we're going to do today. The spirit of religion ultimately wants us to see God as a hard, harsh taskmaster, okay? The spirit of religion wants us to see God as a hard taskmaster with a relentlessly dogmatic standard of righteousness that can never be obtained, okay? Once we have that view of the Father ingrained in our minds, then the spirit of religion comes around from the other side and begins to reinforce this view And it does this by becoming our comforting guide, drawing us into a life of formulaic devotion to rules in an effort to appease this harsh, authoritative God. So if we have this mindset, when we read scripture, we will see God as a, at the very least, this authoritative, the buck stops with me person, as opposed to a tender, loving father. And and the reason why I feel like we need to talk about this today is when we dive into the topic today, which is about women and how the Bible views women, we have to understand how the enemy has been working to create a narrative of God that's not really there, okay? So again, the spirit of religion wants you to view God as harsh, and then the spirit of religion wants you to comfort yourself in the presence of that harsh God by feeling like you're doing everything right because you're devoted to the rules so that you can appease this harsh God. All the while, this is a truth clouded in a ton of untruth. What is the truth here? That God does have a standard of righteousness that we can never attain. That's true, right? That's accurate. God in who he is, is holiness personified. He is righteousness personified. And so we can look and say, well, yeah, that's true, right? But what we do with that truth matters so much because the truth of that is that because God loves you so much and because he has this standard, he gave you his son so that now he measures your righteousness through his son in you, not by your own works. That's the new covenant, right? So every time we start to move into this, I've got to do this, I've got to do this, I've got to do this, in that mentality, we've stepped out of the true understanding of who God is. Do we do works? Yes, right? The Bible tells us faith without works is dead. But the rhythm of where that comes from matters. Okay, so in reality, God's standard of righteousness, it cannot be attained, but through his infinite love, he, in his mercy, he gives us Jesus. Man, thank you, Lord. I want to just pause for a second, and it, I just want to 
I just want to take a second to pray because I'm sure in a room this size even, some of us would say, yeah, I actually have that view of God. Actually, my view of God is that he's this authoritative person that's kind of disappointed with me because I just can't fulfill all of these things. And if you feel that way, I just need to let you know you're under the influence of a lie because that is not what Jesus paid for. If you are in Christ, you are now righteous in God's eyes. He treats you like he treats Jesus, not because you've done anything to deserve it, but that was the whole point anyway. There's nothing you could have done to deserve it. Amen? So let's just pray. I just ask the Lord, God, give me a true picture of who you are as a good and loving and kind father. Lord, we want to have a redeemed mindset of you. When we have this mentality of who God is, and then we go and read the Bible, then we have this lens, right? And so we begin to hear God as an authoritative voice instead of a loving father. So the true picture of God is found in Jesus on the earth. Amen? We know this, right? He was the image of the invisible God. So everything Jesus did, how he ate, how he walked, how he breathed, how he spoke, all of that is who God is. Yes? And so how we see God view women, for example, is how Jesus viewed women. That is how God feels about women. This is what's interesting. Who Jesus was on the earth demonstrating God's picture and image for us was who he was before the cross. So why is this helpful for us to understand? Because at the point of the cross, God made it available for all of us to enter into that, right? And so what that says to us is that God's perspective on women, for example, was, was the same yesterday, today, and forever. In other words, how Jesus demonstrated his love to women was not just after the cross he redeemed and reconciled women, but that's how he was all along. Does this make sense? It's quiet in here. When we view God as a harsh, authoritative figure, what we do is we play, we treat God like an abusive father, like, we're, like he's playing Russian roulette with us, right? Like we never know what kind of a mood he's in. I don't know if you've ever experienced that, like you, you have somebody in your life and you just don't know. Sometimes they're a delight, sometimes they're a devil, <laughs> and you kind of walk in like, I don't know how you're going to be today. That is not who God is. He is constantly loving and kind. And we need to read scripture through the lens. All right, let's dive into a couple of scriptures here. Is that okay? I'm going to put them on the screen, and uh, you can go. You can turn to it yourself if you want to see it. This is Genesis 2, 15 through 22. We're looking at the ESV in this one. I've got all the translations up there for you. All right, so you guys know this story. This is the Garden of Eden, right? What I want to do is show you how when we begin to hear God as a harsh and authoritative figure, we actually read the Genesis story in a completely different way. So I want you to take a second, just Lord, renew our minds, help us to see you as a tender, loving father through this scripture. It says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day of it, if, if that you eat it, uh, you'll surely die. Let's pause there. Did you notice how Eve was not created yet? So God gave Adam the command to protect the tree. And we're going to find later that God confronted Adam for eating from the tree. Eve wasn't created when this command was given, and Eve wasn't even originally a part of his rebuke after the fall. This is where it gets really interesting. So the Lord God said, it's not good for a man to be alone, so he makes Eve the helper for him. Um, let's see, let's go on to the next chapter. 
So this is after the serpent has been doing his thing to Eve and, and soliciting lies to her and all that. Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together to make themselves loincloths. Here's what I think is interesting. Have you guys ever, just raise your hand if this is how you used to see uh, the Garden of Eden. Before I understood who God was, I envisioned the Garden of Eden happening like this. They were commanded not to eat. Adam was doing something. Eve is hearing the serpent lure her. And Eve eats the apple. And Adam stumbles upon her with like applesauce falling down her chin. And he's like, what have you done? And she's like, I don't know. And then in this pure Romeo and Juliet style, he drinks the poison too so they can go down together because he's so disappointed in her. This is a little bit of how I viewed this story. And the reason why is because of a guy named St. Jerome. Anybody ever heard of St. Jerome? He translated the Bible into Latin in about 382 AD. He was a father in the Catholic church or the church back then. And he hated women. This is an uncomfortable truth, and it just is. I'm not going to repeat to you some of the things that he said, but they are bad. They are very bad, uh, and they're embarrassing, okay? And he didn't like women. So when he translated the Bible into Latin, which was the most commonly used text, this is what he did. Uh, let's see, right here, she took the fruit and ate of it. Let me see if I can make this work. And uh, she gave some also to her husband who was with her. He just marked that out. I'm not kidding. The word "im" right there, which means that Adam and Eve were together during this whole thing, he got rid of. So for hundreds of years, one word changed the whole context of how we view women. How many of you have ever felt like women were the root of all evil because Eve ate the apple? Are you kidding me, Eve? If you had just kept your mouth shut, stuck to a diet or something, we wouldn't be in this mess. But here's the crazy part. Right here, God gave the instruction to Adam. He didn't give it to Eve. Right here, their eyes were opened after he ate. I erased it, sorry, but it says right here, and he ate. And then their eyes were open. Later on, I believe it's in Hebrews, it actually says that it was Adam's sin that brought sin into the world. How many of you guys have believed in your soul at some level just culturally, that women were why the fall happened. It's not what it says. Let me just take this just a little bit further. Let's keep going. And then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man. Oh, my gosh. I went right over the word. The Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Where is Eve here? This is interesting stuff, right? Because forever we have this belief that women are the weaker sex, that we are the inferior people, that we cannot be trusted because of what happened in the garden. And if we're going to use that logic, it's going to be an uncomfortable moment for the men in the room, right? Okay, so let's just keep going. So then we get to verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent. So, so if you're hearing God as an authoritative taskmaster, 
And there, and we can use logic to say, if he's that way, then he's ultimately really disappointed with Eve because she's the one who was craving the applesauce, right? We don't even know if it was an apple, but she's the one who ate from the tree. But they did it together, okay? So then he goes in, and I used to picture this as God stepping in and doling out curses like Oprah doles out cars. Like, you get a curse, you get a curse, you get a curse. He walks in, and he's like flipping tables because I used to picture God with unbridled rage, because I believed he was this authoritative, harsh, sometimes good and kind, but other times holding wrath in his hands, being. That's not what happens here, okay? If we believe that, then we read this next part about the serpent. Oh, I don't have it on here. We read this next part about the curses through this lens that God is so angry that he's raging at his people. But if we renew our mind and recognize, wait a second, God, you are a tender and loving father, then the whole narrative of the curses goes into a different light. This isn't the point of the message today, so I don't want to go through all the things that the curses were, but basically he says to the serpent, look, (laughs) this is what I picture. He steps in. He's disappointed. Can we be honest about this, right? God, it's it's not a great day. Is he angry? I don't think so. Why? Because Jesus had already been chosen to be the lamb that was slain. So none of this is a surprise to God. He knew at some point somebody was eaten from that tree, okay? So he steps in and he says to the serpent, her offspring, you had dominion over her for a moment, her offspring will have dominion over you. You guys know the scripture, you know, they're going to crush your head with her heel, with their heel. And we know that's pointing to Jesus, but I think that's pointing to all the children that will come forth to be like Jesus as the sons and daughters of God, that every child on the earth has the potential to wreak havoc on darkness. And so from this point forward, his curse to the serpent becomes the catalyst for the hatred of women on the earth forever. Because the enemy knows that women hold the key through childbirth to its destruction. It's not just Jesus, in my opinion. It's Jesus plus all the things that we're going to come. So let's just renew our lens for a second. This was a collaborative sin. Both of them were complicit. Both of them were to blame. So we, we have to understand God knows what has happened when he steps in. God knows who is to blame. God only asks questions he already knows the answer to, right? That's who God is. So when he goes, where are you? Did you eat of the tree? Well, he already knows the answer to that. And in this moment, we have to remember God is a good and loving dad who knows his kids' lives are changed forever. And this is not about God and his frustration, because he's already assigned Jesus to be that, to be the, 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 the answer to the problem. This was about a father saddened by the hardships his kids were now going to endure. So when he begins to give the curses, I believe it's less about him being angry and enslaving someone, and more about him un- giving understanding of what's going to happen. For example, with the serpent and Eve, then he says, I'm going to greatly increase your pains in childbirth. Why? I think because the cost of bearing the offspring who would have dominion over the enemy had to be more, like she had to have an awareness of that. This is a very precious thing that's happening. I think there's a lot of nuance, and we could spend a whole sermon talking about the different curses that God laid out, but we have to recognize first and foremost, he was not in his anger shooting curses like a machine gun. He was explaining to his kids This is the world you will now live in because of what you did. There are consequences to our actions. So again, from this point forward, we see that that the enemy is after women. He hates 
women. He hates men too. So men, you guys know this, right? You already know he hates you too, okay? But he really hates women. And if we look historically, a society statistically rises and falls based on the level of education that they allow their women to have. In fact, in Africa, it's been a third world country forever, and statistics would say it's because the women generally only get educated till about 13 or 14 years old, because when they turn 13 or 14, they go through puberty, and they begin to have a menstrual cycle, and they do not have access to feminine products in most African countries. And so because, who, who wants to show up at, to middle school dealing with that with no feminine products? No one does. So the women drop out, and they never get to higher levels of education, so they're not able to get to other jobs. And so countries like Africa and others stay at the level of the education of their women. Look, you can look this up. This is not a biblical statistic. This is a world organization statistic. The level of treatment that women have is directly related to the, the blessing, you could say, the, the societal you know, benefits that a country will have. Women are really important to the picture. Why? Because without redeemed and restored women advancing the kingdom alongside of men, the full image of God will not be displayed on the earth. This is not about women taking their place and men having to diminish. This is not you take 50, I take 50. This is both of us at 100 to whatever God has called us to, to the glory of God. Amen? Feminism is like, a, it's, it's a counterfeit of what God wants to do to restore women because feminism at its heart is trying to make men move out of the way so that women have opportunity, Right? And although at some level we may have to maneuver some things, the heart of God is not to diminish anyone, but that everyone comes into their fullness. We can't have the full image of God displayed on the earth when only men are allowed in certain places, when only men are trusted to make certain decisions. It's just not going to happen because here's why. In Genesis, God's creating different things day after day, and he creates and he says, this is good. And he creates the birds and everything. This is good. He creates the sunsets and the sunrise. I know I'm out of order. This is good. And then he creates man, and this was not good. It was not good for man to be alone. Wait a second. That must mean women are uniquely important to the picture. It was not good. It was an inaccurate reflection of who God was for one gender to be there. And God realized that and was like, I better fix this. Let's find you a companion, Adam. Doesn't really work with an elephant. Doesn't really work with a donkey. I don't know what kind of animals were in the garden. Alligators, yikes, right? I know. Go to sleep, my child. Whoa, man, right? And he creates women to reign alongside of men as equals because together they are the image of God. Men cannot do it on their own. Women cannot do it on their own. It requires both of us. Amen? So without the full image of God displayed on the earth, the enemy wins because there is nothing better than God. I love these stories Grant was telling at the end of worship that the presence of God was drawing people to himself. Look, the presence of God is designed to do that. God is irresistible, but we're not demonstrating his image when we're telling women, you don't belong in these places. We're not demonstrating his image when we're saying, look, ladies, you have a leadership anointing. Would you like to work in the kids and that's the highest that you can go here? We're saying, look, wow, you are an amazing leader. Would you like to be a greeter on a Sunday morning? I can't tell that story. I'm going to tell it. I'm going to tell it. So, uh, oh my gosh. I'm sorry. I'm sure my mom is watching this. I'm very sorry. My mother is one of the most high-profiled women that I know. 
she went to Southwest Missouri. We grew up, I grew up in Springfield, Missouri, and she was um, tasked with the charge to educate women on breast cancer early detection because in Southwest Missouri in the 80s, women were finding out they had breast cancer when it was like stage three and four and it was too late to do anything. And so she and a few other women created something called the Women's Clinic, which went to town creating newsletters and events and things for women's health in particular. And they saw a dramatic decrease in the amount of deaths related to breast cancer, specifically by teaching early detection, okay? So she has tons of accolade. At one point, the, the newsletter that they had going around was going to 40,000 homes who had signed up to receive this newsletter on women's health. She ended up becoming the vice president of one of the largest hospital systems there. She is an, just an amazing woman. And when she retired, she said, I feel like I need to do something with my gifting. So she went to her church, which will, rename, will remain nameless. Great people. Love this church. And she presented her resume. This is a woman who has led the opening prayer to the governor of Missouri, is friends with multiple politicians, senators, the, the uh, Rep uh, Republican majority whip at one point in time. I mean, like, this is a woman with clout, right? And they said to her, would you like to intern for the women's ministry and pick up the snacks at Sam's for the big event that's coming up? And my mother, because she is an integrous woman, said, sure, if that's where you need me, I will serve there. I want to, like, gag myself right now. Do you? Because you're talking about someone who has anointing and managerial skills, and she's on the board of multiple nonprofits who are solving issues in their city for foster care teens. She's an interim CEO for that right now, for foster care teens that don't fit in the system. She's on the board for a homeless program that's rehabilitating men who got out of jail. Look, this is a woman who anointing is shooting out of her fingertips, buying trail mix to put into a goodie bag for people at a women's event. What? And what's happened is because the church has said, I don't know what to do with you to women, and the best that we can come up with is be a kid's pastor. I might give you a youth pastor job. If you're amazing, you might make it to a college pastor, but God forbid you ever sit on the elder board to fix this city through what's happening here because there's this one verse in 1 Timothy that says it's supposed to be men. Should we go there? I told you I can't go back from this. <laughs> well, Lord, here we are. Before I get to those verses, and we are going to get there, and I'm sorry if we go a little long today, but I think this is important. I want us to look at the, the biblical view of women, because what happens in the Old Testament with women to what happens in the New Testament is actually really shocking. God created Eve. She was special to him. Women were special to him. And then we see in the Old Testament, let, just look at this list. These are the roles that women held in the Old Testament. I'm sorry I don't have the scriptures for them, but I can give them to you later if you want them. They were governmental leaders, Miriam, uh, Deborah, Huldah, all governmental leaders in Israel over different time periods. They were businesswomen. Look, Proverbs 31 literally says, look for the woman who's savvy in business. If that wasn't a common thing, it wouldn't be in there, right? They were businesswomen. They were in manual labor. Ruth would be one example. They were worship leaders. They were not Levitical priests. That's important to note. But they did other things in worship. They were worship team song people, songstresses. Wow, that's not a word. Uh, they did processional religious things. They worked around the temple. I know this is going to make you guys mad, and I am sorry. But we just have to face it. We have to face it head on and clean out the wound. 
They were managers of their household. And just look at that last one. In the temple that Solomon built, there was no court for women. There was no separation. Women and men were together in the spot where they could come to the Lord to worship. Then we have this thing we call the intertestamental period where there's 400 years from the Old Testament to the New Testament where there's no literature biblically from that. Uh, There's historical information, but there's no biblical information. And we pick up in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John after this 400-year period with Mary becoming pregnant with Jesus. And the state of women in the New Testament compared to just 400 years earlier is shocking And this is what it looks like in the New Testament. They were primarily homebound. There was a law in the Talmud. This is not God's law. This was a Pharisaical law that referenced a psalm that said, beautiful is the princess in her chamber. And they took that way too far to say the princess belongs in her chamber. And you were not allowed out of your home without an escort. You were able to participate in funerals and weddings without permission. So let's give them a little sympathy clap. Thank you. My mother died and I get to go actually be at the funeral without asking. Like, how generous of you. Sorry, that's sassy. I'm going to pull it back together. (laughs) They were only allowed in the outer court. All of a sudden, there appears this women's court in the temple. And the men and women could be there together. But the men could also progress a little bit farther, closer to the presence of God that the women couldn't go to. That's not there in the Bible. Somehow that came in, in that 400-year time period. They also were managers of their household. And here's where it gets crazy. Their testimony was not allowed to, it wasn't legal. It was not legal for a woman to give a testimony about anything in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, they can. They're there. There's tons of amazing stories of women advocating for all kinds of things, and and they were given, like, judicial help. In the New Testament, if you're a woman, not worth it. Uh, Their presence was not counted. Uh, They just weren't even worth, like, looked at as worth counting. And they were discouraged from learning. That comes out of another Talmud rule that talked about uh, a Deuteronomy scripture that says, teach the word to your sons. And they used that to say it's not worth teaching to the daughters. I guess they excused the part of the Feast of Tabernacles in Deuteronomy where God commands both men and women to be present and participating with the word, but I digress. So I'm asking the question, what the heck happened from the Old Testament to the New Testament? How did we get here? And in that time period, an interesting thing happened, and the Greeks began to infiltrate the Jews' culture, okay? And uh, we know from just biblical language that a lot of Jews actually knew how to speak Greek. It was a very intermixed culture in a lot of ways. And do you want to know what the Greeks thought about women? It's real bad. If the Jews thought bad things about women, the Greeks, it was real bad. They viewed women as completely property. If you had a baby and it was a a girl, that baby was property of the dad until they were about 13, 14. They were married off and became property of their husband. And often their husband would select a future husband upon his death because this was not a human. This was a, a transactional property. They were considered a half step, a step up above slaves. The Greeks, the ancient Greeks hated women. Do you want to know why? This lady, you know who this is? This is Pandora. I'm going to show you my favorite meme of 2020. It says 2020 really started like this. Hey, guys, it's your girl Pandora. Welcome to my latest unboxing video. This is my favorite meme I've seen in like two years. Anyways, I just couldn't resist. Pandora. 
So the Greek mythology goes like this. Pandora was the first mortal created. It was a woman. And she was given, I'm going to get the details messed up, but she was given a gift to give to this person that they hated. And in the gift was all the evil of the world. And they also, because they're generous, threw in hope in there as well. It's a weird story. And they knew that she would be too tempted to keep this vase. It's a vase. It's not a box, but, you know, we'll call it a box. Uh, to keep it shut, to give it. And she does it. She opens it up. And evil comes into the world. And from thenceforward, we hate women. This is the ancient Greek view. So let's go back to this. In the Old Testament, we don't hate women. We don't hate them. They have all kinds of freedom. And then the Greeks begin to come in. And then now all of a sudden, we hate women. And women are the root of all evil. And 400 years later, Jerome is actually omitting the fact that Adam ate the fruit with her and causing the blame of all of sin to fall on Eve, which sounds a whole lot like Pandora, not the Bible, right? Help us, Lord. So what did Jesus do? Jesus confronted the religious view of women as inferior and subservient, and every word of the New Testament also affirms men and women as equals in God's eyes. I'm going to say that again. Every word of the New Testament affirms men and women as equals in God's eyes. God loves women. Yes, guys, he loves you too. But he loves women, and we need to understand this. Look, the way Jesus, how Jesus treated women is the standard of how God treated them. And let me just take this a step further. Paul actually loves women too. Wait, what? Yes, Paul actually loved and championed and rallied women. And this is one of the things that gets really confusing. So let's just do it. We're going to end our time just going through a couple of these dicey scriptures. Are you ready? So 1 Timothy 3, this is one of those ones where we keep women out of higher level leadership in church because they can't be trusted or because they're weaker or because they might be a Jezebel, which Jezebel can be men as well, but nobody wants to talk about that. Um, and, and so we, get, we go to this verse, right? So <laughs> this is going to get awkward and I'm sorry. Verse 1, it is a trustworthy statement if any man aspires to the office of an overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. All right, this word man, this is the Greek word. Let's just take a look at it. Uh, let's see, I want to spell it correctly. It's a Greek word tis, T-I-S, okay, this word right here. It's actually an indefinite pronoun, which actually means someone or whoever, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> it actually doesn't mean man. And you'll see in other translations, this is the NASB, you'll see in the newer NIV, you'll see in the, uh, some of the other ones, the ESV that are more literal, they actually change it and it says whoever. I didn't want to spend the time going back and forth between them all. Pull it up on your U version, you'll see. Some of them say if any man aspires and some of them say whoever aspires. And so what the scholars will tell you is this. This section is a list for men and women who aspire to be a leader in the church. It was actually never about men. Now, how do I know this? A couple of things. Number one, Paul mentions 29 co-laborers in the New Testament in all of his books, all of his letters. Ten of them are women. Ten of 29. That's not a small majority. You've got Phoebe, right? Phoebe was a, a master apostle, he says, basically. Phoebe was leading in incredible ways, and that's a girl. You've got Junia. Scholars don't know what to do with Junia. If you start getting into the history, they've been trying to say that Junia is a male name for decades. 
And the truth of the matter is there's not one demonstration of the name Junia as a male name in any literature of any Greek thing ever in this time period. It would be like saying Stephanie was a man. And 200 years from now, they're trying, or 2,000 years, they're trying to say, well, Stephanie probably was a man, just expelled wrong. In our culture, there's no one named Stephanie. Now, maybe Blake, maybe, you know, there's other names that you might not know, but not Stephanie, right? That's what Junia is. And so we know just categorically, contextually, Paul is an advocate of women, not just because of that, but because of things like Colossians. Now, in the New Covenant, there is now, therefore, no more Jew or Greek, no more male or female. What is he saying? We are all equal in God. He cannot say that and say this. He would be lying in one of those. The problem is not in what Paul said. It's in our misunderstanding of what he said. And in some cases, it's in the Bible translations, the translators bias when they put it in there. I do think in the last couple 20 years, the translators have been getting better about being more accurate with this, but you're going to find translations like this one, and this is wrong. So then it goes on to say in verse 2, an overseer then must be of reproach. So now it goes on to describe men, the things that men need to do. And then we're going to get down here in verse 11 right here. Oh, sorry, I'm really bad at this. That women, now some people will tell you this is women like the wives of the men. That's not what it says, guys. If a woman wants to be an overseer, these are the things that she needs to be. Why? Well, in the Greek culture in this time period, men had a lot more issues than women. They just did. They were out in society a lot more than women. Women were primarily homebound. They weren't very educated. They were kind of interacting with their families, and they were monogamous people culturally. The men were not monogamous. The men were polygamous. They had multiple wives, or it was very open to have mistresses. And they were also openly bisexual. This was the culture then, right? So if you go into the, I mean, you probably shouldn't, but if you go back into history, you're going to see that there was like a whole transgender movement of men in ancient Greece. They would grow their hair out long. They would actually braid it like the women's hair, and then they would engage in activity that is inappropriate. And it was on vases and pottery and art that they have found as they've excavated the ruins. It's very weird. All right, so let's just keep going in this. I could be here all day, so I'm going to try to be succinct. Uh, Verse 8, okay, buckle up. I've underlined these two. Deacons likewise must be men of of dignity. And then we go down to verse 10, these men. Guys, listen, in the original text, that word men is not there. It's not there. Like literally, pull up in the Dead Sea Scrolls, that word is not there. So what a translator has done to the best of their ability, and I'm just going to say I'm sure they were trying their hardest to be, to be good at what they do, they're taking the context and they're adding in things to make it make sense, but it's just not there. If we're using 1 Timothy 3 as our guide of where women can achieve calling in church, then we are really needing to rethink some things, primarily making sure we're reading what the Bible actually says, not what we want it to say. Why is this important? Because I'm sure you, like me, have heard people say countless times, look, God would never call a woman to be a senior pastor. Look, we don't even have to deal with that because it wouldn't be God. So what do you do with a woman who has felt God call them to that? They have to go be a Presbyterian or a Methodist because those denominations openly let women be pastors? 
This is a big deal, actually, because what happens is our girls in our community, as they're growing up, they're just they're subconsciously receiving the message that God calls a special person, a special man to be a pastor. And the best that I could achieve if I want to be used by God is I better marry a man who also has a ministry calling. And it's probably better just in life. It's a little bit easier, but it's not a prerequisite. We're going to talk about that some next week. All right, let's just keep going. Let's do 1 Corinthians 11, uh, also dicey. So this one is about the, the hair, okay? So let me just say a note because we're not going to talk about the hair section in the middle, but I already talked to you guys about some of the issues with the hair. And um, one of the things I love in this section of the book, of the letter, is that Paul is basically going, look, guys, like, do you need a rule about how God feels about your hair? And we see that at the last part in verse 16, where he says, but if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor have the churches of God. What he's saying in that is going, look, nobody deals with this issue about hair except you. (laughs) That's what that says. And so he's like, does it go up? Does it go down? Is it a disgrace? Can you have a head shaved? Can you have your hair loose? There was all of this is very cultural into what the Greeks were dealing with in the time in Corinth. And, uh, And so we just need to know that God probably cares less about our hair than we think and more about how we fit in our culture and how we're viewed from our culture standpoint more than he cares about whether it's curly or or straight or, you know, natural or whatever. Okay, so I'm not going to go into that anymore. So let's go into this part. This is the one that that gets us. It's the one that gets us, ladies. Look at your husbands and say, uh, something is going to change. So... Here we go. Grant is here to pray for you at the end of this. But I want you to understand that Christ is, Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. How many of you guys have read this scripture and thought, okay, so then men are a little bit more important than women, or, or a little bit more inclined to leadership than women? And how many of you have actually looked at this scripture and squinted a little bit and thought, I know a lot of men that are bad leaders? Any ladies? I might be saying to the men, I'm sorry, you might not have known, but there's quite a few of us who are like, this is unfortunate, because what if you ended up with one that's not a good leader? And they're supposed to lead you, and they can't. Yikes. And so now I'm forever out of favor with God because I'm married to a husband who's not a natural-born leader. And shocker to all of you men, I know you know, not every man is born a leader in the same way that not every woman is born a leader, right? Not every man wants to lead his wife in every single way. Some of you men are like, thank you, God, for admitting that. Not every man wants to have a family devotion and be the person teaching their family. Some do, some don't. So what do we do with this scripture? I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. Would it be surprising to you to know that this word head, I'm going to write it out horribly, K-E-P-H-A, you can go look this up, that's why I'm giving it to you, kephale, let's pronounce it like that, I don't speak Greek, so kephale, kephale, I don't know. How is it? Somebody shout it out? No? Okay. Kefale, let's say. It sounds fancier. Kefale, that would be Italian. So uh, this word head actually means source. It actually means source. There is no record 
in ancient Greek language that it means any type of authoritative or hierarchy term. That is including the ancient Greek words written by people like Plato and Aristotle that are not biblical texts. When this word kephal, kephale, however you say it, is used, it is never used in a hierarchy term. Hold on, say what? I'm not telling you ladies to go burn your undergarments or anything, but I am telling you that we have misunderstood this scripture. Here's what it means. I want you to understand Christ is the head of every man. Christ is the source of every man. Man is the source of a woman, and God is the source of Christ. If we're talking about source as it means, it actually means creation. We can go back to our slides on Genesis and see that this is true. God created man. Man was the source for the creation of women, right? We got his rib. Why does this matter? Because Paul is talking to the Greeks who believe Pandora was the first person. Paul is talking to the Greeks who had a fundamental, lifelong understanding that the first human being was woman, and she was evil, and she destroyed everything, and therefore our picture of women is all messed up. This is interesting, right? So he's actually not saying, men, you're better than women. How do I know this? Let's just jump down a few verses. Okay, so how about 11? However, in the Lord, neither is a woman independent of a man, nor is man independent of woman. That sounds like equality to me. For the woman is originated, I'm not going to keep underlining, <laughs> for as the woman originated from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. So we cannot isolate this head thing and forget about the rest of the sentence, basically, the, the exhale of Paul's thought, when he's actually saying, look, the man was the creation of women, and now women create men in their wombs, and so we're all created by God. There's no hierarchy here. Scholars will tell you if there is hierarchy here, then Paul would actually be trying to create a hierarchy in the Trinity, which we know he's not, because that's not anywhere else in anything that he writes. And it's just not how God views it. So this isn't hierarchy. And furthermore, if it was trying to say hierarchy, like if source meant importance, then the animals and the fish are more have authority over us as humans. Because that's the logical connection here. If we're going in order, then and we're going that order begets authority. But we can't do that because we know that Adam on his own was not good in God's eyes. All right, one more. 1 Corinthians 14, 34 through 40. As in all the church of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. Now, let's just remember, this is actually the same letter, okay? This and this are a continuous train of thought. So if they feel contradictory, then we have to look at it and figure out why does it feel contradictory. So the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but, in, but should be in submission, as the law also says. So this is interesting, because right here, uh, in this section, we're talking about women speaking, and what their hair should look like when they speak. And then a few sentences later, we're saying, but women should be kept silent. So we have to look at this and say, what is Paul actually trying to say? What is 1 Corinthians actually telling us? Well, two things you need to know. Number one, 1 Corinthians was a letter in response to a letter that Paul actually received. And there are sections that people believe was, was uh, Paul was quoting what the letter said and then responding to what it said. 
But we don't have that letter, so we don't know what sections there are. So 1 Corinthians is one of those books where it does feel like there's contradictions, and that's one of the theories about why, is that he's actually stating things he received that the church was asking him and then giving the answer. So throw that out there for you as well. But number two, we know that Paul is not saying women cannot participate in the church. Because number one, he doesn't say that in the context like this in any other place. It undermines how he actually created church leadership teams in Ephesus with Timothy, Priscilla and Aquila, with Phoebe, with Junia. It's not the same thing, right? So when we dive into this, what we discover is this word speak here, they are not permitted to speak, is actually the Greek word lolio, which my predictive text tried to make paleo, so that'll be help you remember it. Lolio. I am terrible at writing on this. That's okay. Lolio, however you say that, it's actually, that word means like chit-chat. It would be annoying to me as your pastor when I'm preaching if you guys are talking to yourselves and not listening to what I'm saying, <laughs> right? I'm trying to teach you the word of God, and you're over here talking about what you're going to have for lunch. You're over here like murmuring, like, did she really, is she wearing a chief shirt? right? Like that's chit chat, right? And that's what Paul is saying. Look, guys, don't do that. He's talking to a culture who has basically enslaved women from the beginning of their time, who believe something completely wrong about the way the world was created. And he's trying to help them grow. He says later, I don't know if it's, I forget if it's in First Timothy or, or uh, a different book, but he, he says the women must learn That is a command. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. What Paul is saying is, look, raise the women up and do it in a way that they can learn and engage and become everything they're called to be and chit-chat because they finally got to come to a public gathering that wasn't a funeral or a wedding is not helpful for that. That's what that means. So again, there's no hierarchy here. There's no... uh, (laughs) We're going to talk about this next week. Spoiler alert. But... Honestly, in the Bible as well, there is no biblical standard for men to tell women they have to submit. Even the word to submit, wives submit to your husband, is a command for the women to be right before God, not for men to lord that over them. Like our understanding of this has just become so skewed. Why? Because we think God is this authoritative, harsh taskmaster. And if we don't follow 1 Corinthians to the letter, he might be mad at us. And so we suppress women because we don't know what to do with this because we're trying to appease him all the while not realizing he gave his life for women to be empowered. He looked at the woman caught in adultery who was unfairly shamed because the man legally should have also been shamed and he empowers her. He goes to Mary Magdalene, and he frees her, and then he redeems her and calls her to be a disciple. He goes to Mary in the context with Martha, uh, rejecting all societal norms, and says she has actually chosen the right thing, and she chose something that was like legally not allowed to learn from a rabbi, to be a disciple. We could go on and on and on, and then we want to believe that God is mad and going to withhold his blessing from the church because we want to say a woman can do something more than teach Bible study or teach children and Bible study only to women? (laughs) Something is wrong. That's all I'm saying, right? And I am telling you... This may be the cross that I die on, but I have asked the Lord so many times, why Oklahoma? Why here, God? 
Send me, Lord. Here I am. Send me to the coast. Send me to the ocean, God. You know I encounter you better there. And he puts me as a woman, as a senior pastor in Oklahoma City, and he goes, go get him, tiger. And I tell my friends privately, and now everybody's going to know, I, tell, I have a couple of women friends who are senior pastors as well, and I tell them, don't you ever feel like you're God's middle finger? It's like just by the nature that I'm a woman and I stand and I preach the word of God, I'm not just preaching encouragement, I'm telling you what the word says. In Oklahoma, when Chris Kane came last year to a church, they literally picketed the church because Chris Kane was teaching the Bible, Christine Kane. I'm sorry, what? She is literally doing more for the kingdom of God than any of the people picketing that day, and they're going to waste their breath because God says women shouldn't speak. So ladies, don't chit-chat. Now you've obeyed the word. Let's go out and change the world. Amen? You guys, you've got to hear me. This is so important to the Lord. I got two last thoughts for you. If, if you're like, wow, I don't know if I can believe you. This, this feels wrong. You can go look it up. That's fine. But let me just tell you this. In the old covenant, the sign of the covenant, the sign that you were in God's people was circumcision. Unfortunately, ladies, we could not participate in that sign, right? It wasn't going to happen. Thank you, Lord. Uh, and, then, and then in the new covenant, do you know what the sign is? Water baptism. Water baptism. God was like, wait a second. I didn't mean that to become a gender thing. So the new sign is going to be something we all do that we share equally. This is his heart. This is his heart. Jesus, the great example of how God feels about women. So listen, ladies, you have to hear me. You are free to feel God's love. You are free to be empowered to do whatever it is that God tells you to the glory of God. If he tells you to be a stay-at-home mom, you do that to the glory of God with liberation in your soul because who gives a crap what somebody thinks about what you're doing when you're being obedient to God? If God calls you to be the president of the United States, you go do that to the glory of God. If he calls you to be a fighter pilot, you guys know the women fighter pilots of the, the last part of the Middle East? I mean, whoo, man, I was like, Props to you, ladies. I don't know if you know this, but the Muslims, they do not. It's a huge shame to be killed by a woman. And so the military started putting women in the cockpit. Probably a bad example for a sermon, but. Uh... <laughs> but whatever it is that God calls you to do, do that to his glory. And know that you're fulfilling the word of God when you do. Because he died for you just as much as he died for men. And listen, every man in here has a woman in their life. So this is just as important for you to know, especially if you're a dad of daughters. This is so important that your daughters know the only thing they need to think about when they're thinking about what to do with their life is God's opinion. God's actual opinion, not what we thought his opinion was, right? That if you are a lady and you're like, I have a ministry calling and I have a husband who doesn't, then we're going to tackle that next week, actually. And what do you do with that? Because that's a real thing. And, and okay, I'm going to wrap this up. <laughs> Let's just pray. Is that okay? Just go ahead and stand up. If you're around a lady, just put your hand on her shoulder. If you're not... Uh, just extend your hand to one of the, the beautiful females in the room. If you're looking for a lady, come find me after. I'm a good matchmaker. <laughs> I'm just, I'm teasing. I'm, I'm offline now. Okay. Uh, wow. Father, we, we just thank you. 
that you are such a good God. And in the ways that the spirit of religion and other principalities and filters and lenses have caused us to see you in the word in areas where you aren't there, Lord, we repent for that today. And God, we ask for forgiveness on behalf of the Bible translators that let their own bias affect the way that they handled your precious word. Lord, we ask for for the, the Bible translators that are currently working and continuing to work to expose these things, that you would bless them, that you would empower them, that you would give them the spirit of revelation to guide them. And Father, right now I'm asking over every woman in this room and every woman that is listening to this to be free in the name of Jesus from the constructs that the church has put on them that you never put on them. And Lord, in the way that we're going to look next week, that you implore us as women to submit to obedience to you. God, we declare that obedience to you is the boundary that we want. We're not going for lawlessness. We're not going for radical uh, anything besides pursuing you according to your will. And so, Lord, I just release the burden right now. I release the burden of women who have felt like they had to submit to a man to be right with you. I release the burden of women who have felt like they were under some sort of uh, leadership that they could never move past in the Lord because of misunderstanding these scriptures. Lord, we release every burden and every chain and every stronghold that has come onto women in this time. And God, we declare, we release a declaration today that the full image of God will be released by your sons and your daughters, both operating at 100% of your purpose in their lives. And we will not settle for anything less, God. Thank you, Lord. And Lord, I pray for the men the mighty men that you've brought into this body and the men that are listening to this, God, that they would be champions of you, Holy Spirit. They would champion you, that they would become all that they're called to be and they would be advocates to helping women become all they're called to be as well. We love you, Jesus, and we love your true church and we love your body. God, continue to assign us where we fit in it. In Jesus' name, amen. Go Chiefs. If you need prayer, oh, let me say one last thing. I wanted to make a note about this book. If this stuff is interesting to you, this I've read probably six or seven books on this topic. This is the easiest to read and the most simple and the best one. It's also the shortest, praise God. It's called The Other Half of the Army, Phil Olson. He actually goes in detail to this and way more about what we talked about with the Greek word. So if that interested you, grab this book. It's available on Amazon. You can come flip through it up here. Um, Okay, we'll see you next week. Love you.